Well, the economic gloom in the nation has been lifted, if only temporarily, with the rising fuel costs and falling house prices. Uh, over the past few weeks, with the success of Team GB at the Olympic Games, uh, following their return from Beijing in the special plane, there have been scenes of celebration when they touched down at Heathrow Airport. And this week in Edinburgh, uh, the Scottish athletes were welcomed home, led by the King of Scotland, triple gold medalist Chris Hoy. Everyone likes to celebrate. Everyone likes a party. Well, not quite everyone. There are always some people who throw a damp squib on the celebrations, who complain that some celebrations are not quite appropriate. That is the case. It's always been the case. And when Jesus, the Son of God, who became one of us, a human being, fully human, entered our world, he entered our society. He didn't stand back. He participated fully in our society, in all sorts of things. And he accepted invitations to meals, to parties, and to celebrations. But not everybody was happy about this. The religious leaders of the nation of Israel complained about the kind of parties he went to and the kind of people he mixed with. Uh, they divided everyone into two groups, one of two groups. Uh, there was a group that they called the good or the righteous, which was basically them and a few of their friends. And then there was the other group of society, the whole mass, that they called the bad, or technically they called them sinners. And that included everyone else and particularly really bad people. You know, in every society, there's always one group that's really bad. And in their society, it was tax collectors. Now, it's not because there are some tax collectors here this evening, I'll be careful here, but in their day, tax collectors were collaborators with the occupying Roman powers, an army in Israel, and they also ripped off everyone else by charging too much on taxes. So, the people they particularly disliked were tax collectors. And so, when Jesus accepted invitations to parties hosted by sinners and tax collectors, they didn't like it at all. And they let you know it. So, while the party was going on, they stood outside the door, muttering. The New Testament uses a word in the original Greek, which is one of those words that sounds like it is. It's a Greek word, gongudzo, which is, you know, you know, the gongudzo at the door. And they complained, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus knew what they were thinking and saying. And so instead of just challenging them face on, he did what he often did. He told one of those famous stories. You know the ones, they call them parables. So he told three famous parables. And if you grew up in Sunday school, or even, I think, still in school, along with all the other religious education, one of the teachers down here nods his head and says, yes, well, they do it at his school, Harriet's. Uh, they still teach children uh, these parables and these stories. So what we're going to do is look at this story, because the stories are an answer to the criticism that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, it will help to turn to the Bible, so you can see it for yourself. Uh, this is the Bible. There are Bibles in the pews. If you've not got your own with you, if you are regular here, bring one along, or some of you are now turning to your electronic versions. Get your little pen out and turn to Luke 15. 
And these parables have a common theme. Reason to rejoice. Reason to rejoice, not only on earth, but in heaven. All right? Here's the introduction bit that I just explained. Luke 15, it's page 1048. All right? Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious guys, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you, you can imagine them there, this is the criticism, and then Jesus starts telling a story about sheep. I mean, immediately you sit up and listen, don't you? Well, you should. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me! I found my lost sheep! Now, here's the point. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then if they've not got the point, he tells them another story. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me! I found my lost coin! In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continues, story number three. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got all together, all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent his wealth, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and he's found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat. So I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, 
You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Isn't that wonderful stories? You get the point? What's about? Answering the criticism? Jesus says, celebrations on earth should match celebrations in heaven. Each of the three stories. Look again. It says, rejoice with me. Verse 6. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Now, what were the stories about? Well, you don't need me to really tell you. There's stories about something that is lost and is found. Uh, this week, Nita and I went to one of my favourite trips to the Costco big store, you know. We have a card from through the chapel, which is very useful, yeah. It's a place where you always spend more than you intend to spend. And uh, when we got to the desk, I took my wallet out, and lo and behold, my debit card was missing. I always keep it in the same place. I said to Nita, my debit card's not here. So she said, you probably dropped on the floor. So we began looking on the floor. We looked in the trolley, you know, and then we said, it's not here. What are we going to do? So I said, here's my credit card. Don't take credit cards. Only debit cards. Thankfully, Nita had got her debit card, but this didn't put my... Uh, con- uh, didn't let me arrest easy at all. I said, Nita, so let's stop for a break on the way back. No, no, we're going back home. So we went back home, and, and uh, we, I said, maybe I dropped it as we came in. We looked on the floor, we looked under the bed, we looked in the drawer, we looked everywhere we could, we searched high and low, and I said, I'm going to have to ring up, you know, and cancel it, and it's just a complete hassle, and, you know, they're going to get all my thousands if somebody's picked it up in the street and everything. So... <clears throat> Eventually, Nita searched around. She said, I'll have a look around. And, uh, and Nita searched everywhere. And she found my credit card in the top of my shirt in the wash basket. How did she let it get there? I don't know. But... <laughs> I better be careful here. I just want you now. Now, it may be exaggerating to describe the discovery of my debit card as a reason to rejoice, but it was certainly a reason for relief. But in each of the stories Jesus tells, there is real reason to rejoice when what is lost is found. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. But the real focus for rejoicing, what the stories are all about, are not sheep and coins, they are about sons. They're about people. When a lost person is found, Jesus says, when a lost person is found, there is rejoicing in heaven, there is a big party before the angels of God, when one sinner repents. That's why I can tell you this evening, as Donald and Claire about baptized, we've sung, come on and celebrate. I don't know what exactly they sing in heaven. But the angels in heaven rejoice over two sinners who've repented. And the sign of this is they're baptized this evening. So, what I want to do very briefly, time is going, is look at the two sides of the story, lost and then found, what they mean. And then at the end, there's a kind of test question. And the test question is this, this evening. Are you rejoicing or complaining? Are you rejoicing or complaining? Are you joining in the celebrations or are you sitting on the side.
So, first of all, lost. Let's take this coat off because it's very hot this evening, isn't it? It's humid. Uh, the dictionary defines the word lost as follows. Unable to find one's way or ascertain one's whereabouts, confused, bewildered, or helpless. Obviously, there is a literal sense of being lost in the case of the sheep, the coin, and the son. But Jesus is implying here a deeper sense of being lost. That is, the confusion and misery of not knowing why you are here on earth and where you really belong. Not knowing why you're here on earth. If I said to you, why, why are you here on earth? What, what are you here for? What's the purpose? Could you give a clear answer? Where do you really belong? And the point of these stories is that Jesus is teaching a very fundamental truth about human beings. And that is, the world consists of lost people. And each of the stories makes the same point about being lost, but each illustrates a reason why we're lost. Three reasons why each person is lost. The story of the lost sheep reminds us that each one of us is lost because of our character. The sheep... Lost because of our character. The prophet Isaiah put it like this. He said, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Sheep are, I'm told, temperamentally prone to wander. Not with a deliberate plan in mind, but just one step at a time to the next patch of grass until finally they're far away from the flock and the shepherd and cannot find their way back on their own. And many of us, are we not, we're like that. We just drift from our moorings. We live short-sightedly from one pleasure to another. We just kind of drift away, preoccupied maybe in keeping body and soul together. And finally one day you stop and realise, I'm lost, what am I doing here? I've got a whole collection of the Peanuts cartoons. They're not very popular these days, but they've uh, been superseded by other things. But one of my favourites is a picture of Linus, and he comes across the little girl, Charlie Brown's sister, who's called Sally. She's very small, and she's standing holding a balloon and crying. And he says, what's wrong? And she says, I don't know. I was just holding my balloon when suddenly it all seemed so pointless. <laughs> I was just holding my balloon... And suddenly it all seems pointless. There comes a point in your life when you begin to ask yourself, why am I here? Now, maybe you feel like that today. But what can you do about it? The second story of the coin reminds us of a second truth about our human lostness. For the coin is inanimate and cannot, like the sheep, move or even bleat. Well, I've never met a bleating coin. And the coin reminds us that we are lost because of our condition. You see... Human beings are not inanimate like coins, but in terms of spiritual life, our ability to save ourselves, the Bible describes us as being dead in transgressions and sins. That means we're just just inanimate as far as God is concerned. That is the situation of the human heart. It's the one in which we are born. King David, who committed grievous sins of adultery and then conspiracy and murder, finally faced up to... What was the cause? And this is what he said in the famous psalm, one of the Hebrew hymns. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We're not only lost because of our character, we're lost because of our nature, our condition. Now, if this is the case, you may be following and say, Well, that's good then, I'm off the hook, it's not my fault. 
I'm not responsible. But the third story, and you need to put all these stories together, the third story Jesus tells us, this, this is not the case. The Son reminds us that we are lost because of our choice. If the sheep is lost because of foolishness, the coin because of carelessness, the Son is lost because of willfulness. He chooses to get lost. It is a deliberate decision on his part. He says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, you need to understand a little bit about the Jewish background to this story, which Jesus hearers would immediately grasp, which we wouldn't. In the law of Moses, strict guidelines were laid down for inheritance rights. That is, what you got when your father died. The oldest son in ev- it went to the boys. Sorry, ladies, it's just Jewish law. It went to the boys in the family, the sons. The oldest son got the lion's share, what was called the double portion. Twice as much share as any of the other sons. Alright? The rest were shared out among the other sons. Okay, do your maths here. Two sons. Oldest son gets double portion. So, youngest son gets one third of the family estate. When his father dies. What is the man saying? What is this young man saying when he says to his father... Give me the share of my estate. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. His hearers would have been shocked when they heard this story. Jesus' hearers. So demanding his share now is as good as wishing his father were dead, let alone the difficulty and disruption of selling off enough of the estate to pay him out with what he asked for. Yet, there is no argument on the part of the father. He simply concurs, so he divided his property between them. Can I say by passing, what a remarkable example of fatherly love. If it had been your son or my son, when he made this request, we'd have bought him in his bedroom and locked the door and double locked the windows till he thought better about it. But his father didn't. His father simply said, he divided his property between them. And then soon after that, as soon as he's got the money... He's away. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Why did he make such a choice? Freedom. He wanted to be liberated from the shackles of home life and parental restraint. He wanted to see life and all it had to offer in glorious technicolor instead of monotonous monochrome. To leave behind the humdrum home life for the fantasy far country. And so fortune in hand, he sets off down the road with never a glance. This is it, he was gone. It was and is a well-traveled road. Broad and easy, with beckoning billboards that promise life in all its fullness without any constraints or restraints. And I have no doubt there are some people here who are literally either on the road or have already arrived in the far country. Every year we get many students come to this church and some of them come maybe just once because they want to tell their parents they've been to church while they've gone off to university. I remember many years ago preaching in a church in Scotland and the lady said to me, Oh, you're the pastor of Charlotte Chapel. My son comes to your church. You must know him. And I said, What's his name? Never seen him. He came once to Charlotte Chapel so he could tell his mum, What, you're on Sunday? I went to Charlotte Chapel. Then he's away. You see, at first it lives up to all its expectations, but I have to tell you this, it only lasts for a certain time. And some of you may be there, but you've already reached, or you're heading for rock bottom, or what the story describes as the pigsty. You see, his resources, even those of the son of a wealthy man, are not limitless, especially when they're spent with such reckless abandon. 
The word squandered there, the word squandered is an interesting word. It's the word used of winnowing, you know, when, when they throw the grain into the air and then the, the good bits fall to the ground. Well, this boy just throws stuff into the air and there are plenty of people around to catch the falling shekels. But sooner, sooner than he had imagined, the money his father had given him runs dry. The reserves he has lived on run dry. And so, unfortunately then, for this young man, a famine strikes the whole country. And it is not just an ordinary famine, it is a severe famine. And the young man began to be in need, and so did everyone else. And you can be in that point right now, this evening. We see the outcome, absolute desperation. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The only employment he can find as he goes to the job centre is as a swineherd. And this is a Jewish boy for whom pigs were unclean animals. Yet desperation and starvation are no respecter of persons. All his newfound friends who swarmed around him like bees around the honeypot are nowhere to be found. Now the jar is empty. No one gave him anything. There he sits, his hopes... Like his clothes in tatters, he is lost. And such is life, sometimes literally, always spiritually. Within each of us is a desire to break free. A rebellious spirit which drives us to go our own way rather than God's. We choose to go our own way. And we go our own way. And for a time it all seems wonderful. But only for a time, eventually you end up in the pigsty. And maybe you're there this evening. Maybe God has brought you here this evening. And literally, certainly spiritually, you're in the pigsty. It may not be outwardly apparent. You may not be living rough on the streets. You may even have the material possessions of this life, but you are really empty and hungry. And if truth were told, you don't have any real friends. And you wake up one day like this boy and realize you don't belong here. You were lost. Now, if that is the case, I have good news for you because the parables are not just about lost. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. They're about what is lost and then found. So look at the other side of me. Notice that in each of the stories, we see that someone was concerned for what was lost. The shepherd was concerned for his sheep. The woman was concerned for her coin. And the father was concerned for his son. And all three stories illustrate one fundamental truth that the religious leaders of Israel failed to grasp or appreciate. Simply this. The love of God for lost people. The love of God for lost people. If you remember nothing else about this evening, just remember this one fact. God loves lost people. And again, while each of the stories makes the same point, I want you to see in them without exaggeration, that in them we see the love of God. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father. In the first, we see God the Son seeking the lost sheep. You see, the shepherd didn't say, as you might imagine, he didn't just shrug his shoulders and say, well, one missing, you win some, you lose some, only a 1% loss. No, such was his concern for this one lost sheep, 
that he went to search for it, despite the inconvenience, despite the danger and difficulty, he persisted in his search until he found the one lost sheep. It is a reminder that among the crowds of people who are lost, God loves lost individuals. We read this of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. But among the crowds of lost people, Jesus sought out lost individuals, particularly very lost individuals. Later on, if you read on in Luke, the chapter 19, Jesus meets with not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector called Zacchaeus, a small guy who climbed up a tree to see Jesus. And to the horror of people listening, the religious people, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to your house for tea. I used to sing this in Sunday school, some of us. And the religious leaders again criticised him. And this time Jesus didn't tell a story because they should have got the point by now really. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. Luke 19 verse 10. So Jesus described himself. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So they might be rescued and brought into his fold. That's the first thing. God the Son seeking lost sheep. But in the second story, the story of the coin, we see that each person is not only loved by God, but valued by him as well. It has been suggested that the coin was part of the woman's dowry, her wealth. We lived for quite a time, as some of you know, in Pakistan. And we worked among tribal people there. And they didn't have very much. But the women had the most fantastic jewellery. They wore all their wealth. Necklaces and bracelets and things like that, and earrings and nose rings, that was their wealth that they carried with them. It's been suggested that this woman, this was a kind of, these ten silver coins were an essential part of her wealth. And this of great value. Others have suggested, and maybe a bit more exaggerated, that the coin stamped with the ruler's face on his currency represents human beings stamped in the image of God. In either case, the value of the coin and thus the value of the individual to God is highlighted. And what is the significance of the story? It's a story about a woman with her lamp in the story. Many commentators see in this story a picture of God the Holy Spirit finding the lost coin. They see the the picture of the woman is a picture of God the Holy Spirit's activity as the lamp revealing and illuminating those who are lost. In fact, even helping people to understand they are lost as they hear God's word and the Holy Spirit shines into their hearts. Before his death, Jesus promised, he said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send someone like me, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And he said, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The word convict means to bring to light, to expose something that's hidden. It can be a very uncomfortable experience. Maybe you're feeling a bit uncomfortable here in church, partly thinking, how much longer is it going to go on? But also thinking to yourself, this is a bit too close to the bone, you know. He's talking about me. Maybe God is talking to you, exposing you, making you to realise and face up to the fact that you are lost. And when we understand the work of Jesus in seeking the lost the work of the Holy Spirit in finding the lost, then we see in the third story, the other person of the Trinity, the work of God the Father, welcoming the lost, welcoming the lost son. You see, without the first two parables, the activity of the other two persons of the Trinity, it might appear that the lost person simply comes to his senses unaided and finds his way back home again. 
Yes, he needs to acknowledge his lost condition. He needs to repent, not only admitting his sin, but leaving the far country, heading back to the father and home. But don't push every detail of one parable into all three together. We get the picture. Standing alone, it appears that all the father does is sit at home waiting for him to come back. Not caring if he returns. But God the Father sent his son to seek the lost. He sent his Holy Spirit to find the lost. And when they have done their work, God the Father is waiting with open arms to welcome the lost. Indeed, it's a wonderful story, for we see the Father already looking for the Son. Even while he's on his way home, he sees him a long way off. And he does something which people in those days never did, and particularly older people. He ran to greet him. He was so excited, so pleased to welcome him home. God welcomes lost people home. That's why there's a party. And he's welcome back. He thinks he's got this whole speech prepared, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Did you notice he didn't even get halfway through the speech before the father says, quick! Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill him. This son of mine, he didn't say this servant of mine. Such is the father's great love. The welcome to any lost son or daughter who repents, who says the most difficult words in the world to say are these and to know and mean them, I have sinned. And sets off on that difficult road back to God. Maybe this evening is a turning point for you. It's what repentance means. It means to turn around and head back in the right direction. And God is ready to welcome any of us, no matter how far you stray. The whole point of the story is these are really bad people, really lost people. And all of them remind us of the love of God for the lost, his desire that each of us might be found. Notice, we have moved from a lost sheep, one out of a hundred, to a lost coin, one out of ten, and now to a lost son, one out of two. The most personal relationship of all, a lost son who is found. Now, a couple of questions as I finish. The first question, obviously, is this. Are you lost or found? As you read the story, did you say... That's me. I was lost. God has found me. Or are you still lost? God loves lost people. You may say, well, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. God does. And he still loves you. And he longs to call you to himself. But in conclusion, there's a second question. It's the one we said we'd return to right at the end. Final question. Are you complaining or rejoicing? Uh, As we saw at the beginning, Jesus told these three stories. Note the context. He told them because he was criticized. People said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 2. They thought it was all wrong. That any good person, any person like Jesus who claims some relationship with God, should mix with bad people and go to their parties. If Jesus really was God, he'd have nothing to do with sinners, tax collectors, and their, and their attitude is depicted by the elder brother in the story, the third story. He won't, he won't join in the party. When he comes back home, you can imagine he's been slaving away at the fields. He's just coming in to get a shower before, or whatever they did in those days, before you know, his evening meal. And suddenly, he hears this sound of music and dancing. And he says to one of the servants, what's going on? He says, your brother's come back and your father's killed. You know, the fat and calf, the big one we've been saving for a special occasion. He's killed him. And they're having a party. Celebrating. And he was really, really hacked off. Angry. 
that his father should even welcome him, let alone throw a party for him. Why? He says to his father, his father comes out and he says, son, come and join the party. And he says, no way. I've been slaving for you all these years. You've never even given me a little goat to celebrate with. And this son of yours, not this brother of mine, this son of yours, he's wasted all your property on prostitutes and when he comes by, you welcome him. What kind of father are you? But his father says, he tells him what we should do, what the right attitude is. He says, we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost in his family. This is the only appropriate response. God loves the lost. He sent his son to seek them, his spirit to guide them. The father welcomes them home. And then there's a wonderful party in heaven as the angels look down and rejoice over. Oh, look, one sinner in John Chapel this evening has repented. And the angels rejoice before God. Then over all the righteous people, the good people who think they don't need to repent. That's why this service is a celebration. Human beings rejoicing on earth, joining with the angels rejoicing in heaven. And everyone here is invited to join in the party. But sadly and tragically, some people refuse to join in because they don't like the other guests. They remain outside the door, complaining instead of rejoicing. And they are usually the people who never run away from home but try to live good lives in the hope they'll be rewarded by God whom they see not as a loving father but as a slave master. All these years I've been slaving for you, says the older son. I deserve something. I've earned it. And despite the father's reassurance and pleading, they refuse the invitation to the party because they don't understand the father's character. They don't appreciate the Father's love. They've never really experienced what it is to be lost and to be welcomed back by God. You see, we don't earn the invitation. God's not a slave master and we're earning a salary from him. He's a loving Father who gives to the undeserving. Here's the gift that God offers. This is what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I simply ask you, have you received this gift? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior and Lord? Like those being baptized this evening. Do you have reason to rejoice? I hope you do. And if you haven't, that you'll come this evening and say, Lord, I'm lost. Please welcome me home. And you'll discover something amazing. He's already been looking for you all this time. He's halfway down the road, watching for you, returning. And he'll welcome you with open arms into his family as his son or daughter. And if you can join in that celebration, then you can join me in the song we're going to sing before Donald and